X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy, May 7th, 2020. And I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. Today, back in the day in 1975, Gerald Ford declared an end to the Vietnam era. In 1989, voters in Panama rejected Manuel Noriega. And on May 7th, 1993, South Africa agreed to multiracial elections. And on this day, back in the day, May 7, 2008, Dmitry Medvedev succeeded Vladimir Putin as Russia's president. It didn't last long, because on this day, back in the day, May 7, 2012, Vladimir Putin took back the presidency for his third six-year term. And in 1970, the long unwinding road became the Beatles' last American release. The long Today on The Local, your quick six headlines. X-ray journalist Eric Klein profiles local comic book store Books with Pictures and Dick Scouton, candidate for the hotly contested Senate District 14. And first up, it is time for today's Quick 6 local rundown. Oregon Health Authority is reporting coronavirus cases by zip code now, and roughly two-thirds of all the cases in Multnomah County are east of 82nd Avenue. It includes one hot spot featuring two large outbreaks at nursing homes. The zip code with the most confirmed cases per 10,000 residents is 97026. That's in Jervis. Not to be confused with Ricky Gervais. The area has 26 confirmed cases. That's about 680 cases per 100,000 residents. About 10 times Oregon's average. Outer Southeast Portland, 97236, has the most confirmed cases, 159. That's 430 cases per 100,000. That's about eight times Oregon's average. Lake Oswego and West Lynn have reported so few infections the state declined to provide specific tallies. Release of the data marks a new level of transparency by the state. It also has concerned some local health officials who worry that disclosure could perpetrate bigotry. Some of the neighborhoods with higher infection rates include more people of color and those with lower income levels and a bunch of frontline workers. Your daily dose of data, 70 new coronavirus cases according to the Oregon Health Authority, 2,916 known cases, two new deaths on Wednesday, bringing the total death count to 115. And now we've got just about 68,000 tested individuals. 1,100 Oregonians have recovered. One is considered recovered if they have no symptoms for 72 hours or if they're asymptomatic seven days after their last positive test. In Washington, Total cases, about 15,500. Total deaths, 862. I won't round that one off. Each one of those lives is precious. Nationwide, total cases, about 1.2 million. Total deaths, 71,982 confirmed. Worldwide, 3.7 million cases. Total deaths confirmed, 260,487. And the backlog of unemployment claims in Oregon is 47,000, down from 87,000 last week and about 107,000 the week before that. Good luck, Employment Department. I know none of you thought you were signing up for this. Political upstarts have raised the most individual contributions for their city council bids in Portland. You can call them outsiders, upstarts, newly considered frontrunners or underdogs in three of the four city races on the May 19th ballot. Those folks have got the most donors. Sarah Anarone, candidate for Portland mayor, has almost 3,000 individual donors to her campaign. That's about 10 times the donors Ted Wheeler has. He's got about 350. Sarah Iannarone opted into Portland's open and accountable election system. That means her donations get matched. Mayor Wheeler, who opted out of the publicly financed system, also opted not to follow the campaign finance limits voted in by Portlanders, claims about 350 donors, although those are at larger amounts. 
Mingus Maps, running against Chloe Udaly and Sam Adams for council position four, has just under 1,000 donors. And Margot Black, a tenants rights activist running for Nick Fish's empty city council seat, has just over 800 donors. Margot Black told the Lamont Week, this is what happens when working class people feel heard, seen, and represented. Publicly financed elections have given regular people a voice. And speaking of larger donors, Trump's biggest Oregon donors include Stephen Harder of Harder Mechanical, Terry Insko, Linda Smith, a Daimler executive, Vernon Egg of Coburg Rock Quarry, Christine Inman, a big donor to Meals on Wheels, and Gordon Root of the Stafford Land Development Company and former president of the Home Builders Association. And Gordon Root of the Stafford Land Development Company, former president of the Home Builders Association. Stafford has built or is building 150-acre, 823-unit development in Woodburn, 280 lots in McMinnville, 187 lots in Forest Grove, 63 lots in Mount Angel. In the most recent quarter, Phil Knight gave $100,000 to the Republican leadership for Oregon. Hayden Holmes gave $25,000 to the same super PAC, working to elect Newt Bueller for Congress. David Gore of Corvallis gave $100,000 to the Tea Party Patriots. And Philip Fogg gave $35,500 to the Republican Senate Committee. We'll look at some of the big Democratic donors in a future episode. Over 70 percent of the state's COVID corrections cases are in one Oregon prison. The number of inmates infected with the coronavirus at the Shutter Creek Correctional Institution near Coos Bay continues to climb. 25 inmates as of Tuesday have tested positive. Another 20 tests are pending. In addition to those 25 cases, two staff members at Shutter Creek have tested positive for COVID-19. Positive cases have been moved to Coffee Creek in Wilsonville. There, Department of Corrections has two medical isolation units with 108 beds for men and 30 beds for women. The Department of Corrections, that's DOC to you and me, has set up 48 medical beds at the Snake River Correctional Institution in Malheur County. A reminder, something we've covered before, jails in Oregon have reduced their populations by more than 40 percent because of the pandemic. That's according to the Oregon State Sheriff's Association. That hasn't been the case for prisons like Shutter Creek. Governor Kate Brown has said she does not plan to categorically release prisoners early because of COVID-19. More than 1,500 inmates are right now being quarantined, according to the DOC. Oregon has suspended the license of the nursing home hardest hit by COVID. Health care at Foster Creek can claim 117 cases and 28 deaths, half of which have occurred in the last two weeks. This has prompted the Department of Human Services to close that facility. Mike McCormick, interim head of the DHS, said we have worked on multiple strategies to contain the outbreak at healthcare at Foster Creek. have included that moving all the residents is mandatory at this stage. The suspension document listed by DHS lists numerous allegations of inadequate care, including poor infection control and lack of training and staffing. According to the document on May 1st, staff considered COVID-19 positive were on the facility grounds despite stay-at-home guidance. The co-owners of the facility have not commented on the closure. And in the state capitol, Marion County, that's the county with Salem in it, has approved a framework to reopen despite having the highest COVID-19 rate in the state, at least as a matter of counties. Marion County hasn't met many of the state's requirements for reopening, including adequate testing, adequate contact tracing, or a downward trajectory of cases over a 14-day period. But on Wednesday, commissioners indicated they want to begin opening restaurants, bars, childcare, churches, retail businesses, theaters, health clubs, and county parks on May 15th. And happiness is Portland Public Schools has partnered with DoorDash to bring food and materials to vulnerable students. The Fund for PPS, the nonprofit fundraising arm of Portland Public Schools, announced a partnership with DoorDash on Wednesday. They've already put Chromebooks, learning materials, and thousands of meals into hands of 450 students or otherwise wouldn't have been able to get them. So shout out to DoorDash. Another shout out to Bob's Red Mill announcing five $5,000 grants for restaurants. And some good news maybe for summer camps. The state is working on a framework 
for some summer camps to open. Staff for the governor's office and the Oregon Health Authority were unable to commit to a timeline during a conference call with roughly 100 summer camp operators. The guidance suggests camps will be required to split campers into stable groups of 10 or fewer children. But it's a reminder that summer is coming, and there's nowhere that summer is more beautiful than Portland, Oregon, and the Pacific Northwest. Enjoy the sun, everybody. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Reminder that X-Ray FM is offering free radio spots to businesses and organizations in need from the coronavirus. Submit to the local at xray.fm. Here's Emily Gilliland with What's Next. Thanks, Jefferson. First up, small business owners in Portland are writing their own rules to survive during the crisis. One owner of a small comic book store in Southeast is spending her evenings driving all over town delivering comic books to her customers. It's a lot like Amazon without the soul-crushing capitalism. Eric Klein has the story. I wanted to share with you the story of my friend Katie Pride, who's keeping her Portland small business alive during the crisis with the support of her customers. Katie is the owner of Books with Pictures, a comic book shop on Division in Southeast 14th, an inclusive space where everyone can find books and stories that speak to them. One remarkable thing about Books with Pictures right now is that before the crisis, they had a full-time manager and two part-time workers on the payroll, and Katie's managed to keep them all paid during the crisis, even though the doors have been locked for a long time. People from all over Portland who love books with pictures have been buying comics, and Katie has been delivering them to their doorstep almost every night of the week. I've been paying full payroll. Uh, I've been giving the staff work to the extent that I can come up with work that they can do at home. There's some interesting projects we've got in the works. Uh, So they're all artists is one of the fun things. So I've been having them do some art for me at home, which is great, and some design stuff and book recommendations. But mostly, they're not working their regular hours. I'm paying them as though they were. I'm doing that because it's important to me that they be stable and healthy and okay when we can go back to work again. And uh, also because I know that the Oregon unemployment system is not doing the work that it needs to be doing. I think that if we were in a space where I could feel confident that letting people collect unemployment would actually be feeding them, I might be doing this differently, but we're not there. And I do feel like as long as I can uh, fill that obligation as an employer, knowing that there aren't other systems that are going to fill that gap, I am honored to be able to do that. Um, And yeah, the reason that I'm able to continue to pay payroll and pay rent and keep the lights on is because people are buying books. People are actually buying books at about the same rate that they were doing this time last year, Um, July uh, pardon, the month that just ended, which was April, uh, is actually a little bit up, which is weird to say. And it's because people are, you know, bored and have time on their hands. And it's also because people are really passionate about the community we have here and what we do, and they want to do something to support it. And that something is buying comics. So that's what they're doing, which is great. I am doing deliveries. It's a about six nights a week. Um, and I actually, when I get off the phone with you, I'm going to go and do a loop. My delivery routes are usually about 13 stops a night. Um, the limit on Google maps, how many destinations you can string together is 10. So I always notice when I'm doing more than 10 because I have to mess with the map software. So that's, that's the that's the delivery situation, and deliveries are really interesting. There's something incredibly 
heart filling about getting to go to people's homes. There's something very personal personal about being allowed to see where my customers live. And I think that when I offered delivery, I sort of had in my head that most of my customers were very local and uh, like in the neighborhood. And in reality, they're not. They're all over the metro area. Um, and so I'm getting better at making trips that make sense and, you know, delaying the St. John's deliveries until I have a few together sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But, uh, because there are like real practicalities to, to routing, but it's an amazing feeling to think that these people who I see in the shop all the time are traveling that far to get to me. And I love that in this little bit of time where things are very, very strange that I can give that effort back to them and, and bring things to them and see their weird garden gnomes and odd door sigils. And all, uh, my customers have gorgeous houses. All of them are so uniquely theirs and I love it. So the deliveries are, I, I really genuinely enjoy them. Um, and I like making those connections with people and waving at them through their windows. And sometimes they leave me produce or baked goods, and that's nice, too. <laughs> Katie is delivering packages of comics to her customers all over Portland. Some people know what they want and make specific requests, and other people are allowing Katie to make the book selections for them based on what they tell her about their reading preferences. It's not all that different from how visiting the brick-and-mortar store used to work before the lockdown. But I asked Katie to put into words why it's important for her bookstore to exist in the physical world and why it's not okay to just be online selling books forever. Why the store needs to reopen. I mean, one of the things I'm struggling with is that the social aspects of a retail store is absolutely at the core of what I do and what I am here to do. I passionately believe in having a community gathering space for the enthusiasm for this particular art form. Um, I, I think that it's important. I think that having lectures and talks and parties and all of those things that we have are really a crucial part of being humans in community around art, which is really important to me. Um, and I think really important to our souls. Um, and I don't know, at least in the world before there is a vaccine for this disease, I don't know if I get to be that for a while. Um, and that's scary and uncomfortable and sad. And so right now, we are doing some online events, and uh, I, I imagine that we will continue to do more of those. Uh, we have a weekly book club that meets on, you know, Google Meetups, I think is the platform, maybe on Skype. We, so we have, we have a weekly book club that has, is volunteer run and is going really well for them. Um, and it's the, the same volunteers who run the in-store book club. Uh, when we have it. And I'm really glad that that's continuing to exist, but I, I really don't believe that it's the same. Uh, it is good to have a stopgap. And I, I don't believe that, that humans work well when our entire social connections are online. 
And the other piece is really the the thing that I can keep doing, which is helping people connect with their next new thing. So one of the reasons that I believe that Amazon and its friends will never be the same thing as having a physical space for books um, is because of the expertise that comes with being a professional bookseller. I, I don't think that you can replace me with an algorithm. So I have really put my priority in this stage of my business on offering that expertise to people and making sure that they can still connect with being able to come in as a novice, being able to to come to me without knowing for sure what they want or shopping uh, for a gift for a friend or trying to entertain their kid who won't get off the computer or whatever, um, you know, and, and really put together the, this is the packet of books for the eight-year-old who loves unicorns and this is the packet of books for the 25-year-old who really wants romantic escapism, and this is the packet of the books for the guy who just writes, I want dark stories in his field for what kind of books are you looking for? I can do all of those things. They're very different. Um, But I like being able to help people make those connections to new art that they wouldn't otherwise discover. So right now, I'm finding a lot of my purpose in doing that work um, and, and helping people have that joyful discovery moment, even though they can't do it in person in the store. My thanks to Katie Pride of Books with Pictures. For The Local, I'm Eric Klein. Dick Scouton, candidate for Senate District 14, talks with me about creating change locally and statewide, disaster preparedness, and what he's learned on the campaign trail. District 14 of the Oregon State Senate comprises parts of Washington and Multnomah counties, including most of Beaverton and Aloha and adjoining communities. It is currently represented by Democrat Mark Hass of Beaverton. With Mark Hass leaving the post to run for Secretary of State, the position is open for new leadership. Dick Scouton is running to be the state senator for District 14. We have him here with us this morning. Good morning, Dick. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Emily. Thank you for being with us here on X-Ray. Tell us, who are you and why are you running? Uh, yeah, I've um, this district is 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 actually overwhelmingly a Washington County district, mm-hmm. and about seventy percent of the state Senate district is in my Washington County uh, district. Uh, I've been uh, representing uh, the Beaverton Aloha uh, eastern part of Washington County for for almost twenty years now, uh, and uh, I'm running because I'm I think that this district needs a strong progressive. Democrat who's got deep roots in Washington County and really understands uh, this district has been uh, working in the community for a long time and has had good successes. And why this next step in your public service career? Um, well, I um, it seems like today uh, people uh, come and go with jobs pretty frequently. I've, mm-hmm. I've been on the Washington County Board of Commissioners for, for uh, 20 years now. I have really have enjoyed it, but I felt about a year ago or so that uh, it was time um, for someone else to, to, to take a, another look and, and, and uh, another take in, in that position. I had uh, enjoyed a lot of success, but I felt it was time to, to, to move on. Uh, when the seat opened up, 
uh, I thought this was an opportunity to uh, look at some of the broader and work on some of the broader state issues that impact uh, my community and uh, my county government and the city of Beaverton and, and all the communities that are that are inside this district. Um, I um, I had some success uh, recently, a couple years ago, with um, uh, a drug take-back bill in, um, I should say, uh, a drug take-back ordinance in Washington County. We were the first county to have a, a drug take-back um, program in place. And uh, that helped lead to a statewide drug take-back program uh, that I think passed because uh, Pharma felt that once a couple of larger of the local jurisdictions had passed something like that, that it would uh, it would make sense for them to have a uniform drug take-back bill, uh, which uh, this this whole effort uh, uh, put me into Salem quite a bit. I really enjoyed the lobbying I did there, and um, it's no secret that I've uh, married uh, State Representative Sherry Scouton a couple of years ago, and I've gotten to, to experience vicariously her work, and um, it's um, it's a it's a good place to go after a lot of good years on the Washington County Board of Commissioners. Right. So I've had a from chance a, from a policy standpoint, et cetera. Yeah, as you look at recovery from this global pandemic for Washington County, what does Washington County need that you'll be fighting for in Salem as a state senator? What is what are the priorities you would have specifically around COVID nineteen recovery for Washington County? Well, right now, actually, something that I'm very concerned about, I guess you could argue it's, it's, it's not quite at the recovery stage. It's sort of in the immediate crisis that we're in. Mm-hmm. I'm very concerned that um, our farm worker um, camps um, in Washington County and, and elsewhere in the Willamette Valley in the, in the state of Oregon don't become our version of meatpacking plants. Mm-hmm. Um, people have, have, have typically worked in very, have lived and worked in very close quarters uh, in, in agriculture, um, the, the pickers and the, and the migrant workers uh, have often been transported um, in, in buses and, and in a very collective kind of way. Um, I, um, I'm really pushing currently that uh, w- uh, Washington County received about $104 million of CARES money um, because we're one of the three jurisdictions, local jurisdictions that have more than 500,000 uh, people in it. So we got, we got some sort of extra allocations. I'd like to see some of that money go into working with OSHA, with the Farm Bureau, um, with Central Cultural and Salude to make sure that the working conditions this summer and for the next years going forward, um, you know, provide for better living quarters, more, more space, uh, and to make sure that um, that um, those frontline workers uh, don't, um, get, um, you know, get high rates of infection, hopefully none. Mm-hmm. So that's something that's that's more immediate. Um, in in the, uh, in the in the in the longer term, um, we um, uh, I think we need to, as a county, as a state, as a region, we need to. Um, um, be more serious about um, our uh, 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 our disaster preparedness efforts. Mm-hmm. Um, do more tabletop exercises uh, that involve pandemic. We we have we have not uh, put the, the kind of time and effort and coordination into disaster preparedness as a state as we should have, uh, and they have tended to focus in on and and obviously we have real issues and concerns about the Cascadian subduction earthquake, but we needed to I think expand. 
uh, the areas that we do um, our, uh, our, uh, our programming and uh, our exercise in. Um, fundamentally, the COVID uh, you know, um, situation has exposed the very threadbare safety nets that we have. Uh, I, I'd like us to uh, explore. I, I, one of the reasons, one of the principal reasons I'm running is I like to see us um, make some significant increases in, in tax revenues. Uh, I think our uh, our income tax needs to be more progressive. We need to make sure that our kicker tax uh, doesn't go back to the very wealthiest uh, corporate and um, uh, citizens. We we need to hold on to those dollars um, at, at the at the high end. Uh, we need to um, bring it into uh, the interest mortgage deductions for second and third homes. Uh, we, we need to raise some additional money to be able to um, do the kind of programming that, uh, that we need in terms of really uh, having a much stronger safety net than we've had in the state. And I think we should very seriously take a look at the, uh, at the possibility of some kind of a, of a guaranteed uh, universal basic income. Mm-hmm. All those things are all going to cost money, and I think we need, we need some real tax reform. And Dick, as folks look at their ballot and they see your name and they want to learn more, what where should they go to learn more about you and your campaign? Thank you. Yeah, um, my website is uh, dickscouten.com. Dick, S-C-H-O-U-T-E-N, like the number 10, dickscouten.com is, is, is my webpage. And there you'll find, you know, uh, endorsements, some of my policy positions, um, past work experience, um, a little bit about my growing up years. Um, just, just very quickly, I just, um, I'm someone that was an immigrant. Uh, I came to the U.S. as um, as an immigrant at four and a half from the Netherlands, and so my first language actually was not English. And so, I always feel like that's been a real plus for me. That I realize there's more than one way of thinking and one way of doing things, and having that extra dimensionality of another language. And actually, my second language actually was Spanish because my parents originally were working on a farm outside of Fresno, California, on a ranch. So um, it, it's good to be able to, to um, speak other languages. So uh, all that kind of stuff is discussed in, on my website, dickscouten.com. Excellent. Dick, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Thank you. And that's Dick Scouten, candidate for Senate District 14. You can find out more at dickscouten.com. Thanks to Emily, to Eric, to Katie, to Dick for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. You can go ahead and like us on Facebook, and do please rate and review the podcast. Five stars. Five stars. Five stars, please. What the kids tell me is that five stars is the number of stars that is suggested. The recommended number of stars is five stars. And share it with some friends. We think having an everyday local news podcast is something that can really help our community be more informed, not only with what's happening on 24-hour cable news national channels, but what's happening here in our hometown. If you've got story ideas, send us an email at thelocal at xray.fm. We can be together while we're apart. Talk to you tomorrow. In the meantime, stay home, stay connected, and thank you, democracy.